All right. Well, as you can tell, the uh, title for this evening is The Longest and The Last Time Prophecy. So those of you who know what The Longest and The Last Time Prophecy is, then I guess we won't be catching you by surprise. But there may be some of you who need to understand this, who need to study it a little bit more closely. I'll have you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. As you know, and you ought to know, Jesus is the central figure in history. Jesus is the protagonist in this book. In this, There are all kinds of stories in the Bible. Jesus is the protagonist, and Satan is the antagonist. And there is a great controversy going on. As a matter of fact, when people write books, you know, that's what they do. They get one individual in their book, they make him or her the protagonist, and there's always an antagonist in the book, otherwise it would make for some boring reading. Well, where do they get this idea that there's always has to be somebody that's against you? Well, I'll tell you what, it's because there is a great controversy going on, we are living in the middle of a great controversy that's going on all the time, and that's where they get the idea, because it's a great story. Well... We're living this story all the time. Jesus is the protagonist. Satan is the antagonist. We're in John chapter 5. We're looking at verse 39. John chapter 5, looking at verse 39. This is page 943 for those of you who need to know. Okay, verse 39. Jesus said, Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. Jesus is addressing the Jewish people. Jesus is addressing the Pharisees, the pastors of that day. And he says, you look at the scriptures because you think in the scriptures you'll find eternal life. Well, it's true. Eternal life can be found in the scriptures. But these people, even though they thought eternal life was in the scriptures, had divorced Jesus from the scriptures. They just did not recognize Jesus in the scriptures. So he says to them, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. Well, there is good news here. They are they which testify of me. Now, which scriptures was Jesus talking about here? Well, all of the scriptures. But actually, the Old Testament, the New Testament did not exist in those days. And so, it, we already understand that the New Testament are really about Jesus. Well, they did not there was no New Testament then written, and so all that Jesus was talking about was the Old Testament, and he was saying, all of the Old Testament have to do with me. Is it true? Yes, Jesus is the protagonist in all the Old and the New Testament. From eternity, Jesus was God the Son. When one-third of the angels fell, Jesus became, guess what? Michael the Archangel. Now, do you understand that? There's a lot of people, if you were to tell them that Jesus is, is the Archangel Michael, they would say, well, that doesn't make any sense. How are you going to prove that from the Scriptures? But do you know that it is true? And there's more than one way to prove that from the Scriptures, but I'm not going to take the time tonight to do that. However, I would like to show you two verses in the Bible that gives us a hint that Jesus is actually Michael the Archangel. Okay, go with me. Well, you are there already. We're in John chapter 5. Look at verses 26 to 29. I want you to see something. This is John chapter 5, verses 26 to 29. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of God. Marvel not at this, 
For the hour is coming into which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice. Whose voice are we talking about here? It's talking about the, G, the voice of Jesus, right? And then verse 29, And shall come forth that they have, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So you see the picture. Jesus at the resurrection is going to call forth and the dead are going to hear. That's that's pretty loud voice, don't you think? Well, keep this in mind. Jesus speaks and the people that are dead hear his voice. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians now. 1 Thessalonians, this is page 1050, 1050. 1 Thessalonians, we go to chapter 4 and we're looking at verse 16. Keep in mind, when Jesus comes, he will speak. And when he speaks, the dead will hear his voice. Well, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're looking at verse 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. Who's going to be shouting here? Jesus is going to be shouting here. With the voice of the what? The archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And so the archangel and Jesus is one and the same. Jesus is the archangel Michael. We've got it right there. And that's just one proof. So, here we have, from eternity, we're talking about Jesus now as the main figure in all of the scriptures. From eternity, Jesus was God the Son. And when the angels got embroiled in the the deception that Satan brought along, then Jesus became Michael the archangel to deal with the situation. In my mind, and there's not a lot said about this in the scriptures, but in my mind, when The human race fell. Jesus came down and took on humanity to help us to deal with the situation we were in. So when the angels got themselves in trouble, he became Michael the archangel. I wish I understood far more about this than I do understand, but that's the idea that I have in my head. Okay? From eternity, Jesus was the Son of God. And then when the angels got embroiled in the big deception and the big problem, Jesus became Michael the archangel. On earth... When Jesus was here in his ministry, Jesus played the role of a prophet. That's what he was while he was here. He was the prophet. Okay? On the cross, he was the sacrificial lamb of God. When he ascended to heaven, 50 days or so after the cross, when he ascended to heaven, he became the high priest in the sanctuary. After the close of probation at the second coming of Jesus, He takes off his priestly robes and he puts on his kingly crown and he returns as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Today, since his ascension, Jesus is the high priest in the sanctuary. That's that's the role he's playing. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to Hebrews chapter 8. This is page 1066 in Hebrews chapter 8. Jesus is now in heaven and he is the high priest in the sanctuary. This is what we're going to see here. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, 1066. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum, we have such an high priest who is set on on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Where is he? Jesus is in heaven and he's the high priest there. Look at verse 2. He's a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. Who pitched the sanctuary in heaven? God did. Did man ever pitch a sanctuary down here in this world? 
Sure, Moses did that down here in this world. God's sanctuary is in heaven and the only sanctuary that was ever pitched in this world, well, there's more than one actually. Moses pitched one and Solomon pitched one and, and Zerubbabel pitched another one. And so there are sanctuaries. They all had the same theme. They all had the same uh, meaning. And God had organized the sanctuary for the purpose of solving the sin problem. However, there's a sanctuary in heaven and there were sanctuaries down here below. Turn to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. And I'm telling you what, we're going to go through verse by verse and a lot of verses tonight. I sure hope you don't mind using your Bible. Revelation chapter 11. We're looking at verse 19 in Revelation 11. And the temple of God was opened in heaven. Where are we? We're in heaven again. And where is the temple? That's where it is. And there was seen in his temple the Ark of the Testament. What is that? What is this referring to? Well, the Ark of the Testament refers to the Ten Commandments, which is under the mercy seat. This is, well, the Ark is the, is the case that contains the mercy seat. I mean, the Ten Commandments. On top of the Ark, of course, is, is the mercy seat. Okay, so here we are. The temple of God is opened in heaven, and there was seen in the temple the Ark of the Testament, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and earthquake and great hail. And every time in the Bible that you see lightnings and thunderings when God says something, it's because He's trying to bring attention to that thing. And it's like a huge drum roll. Here we have it. It's in heaven, and the Ark of the Testament is there, and the Ten Commandments are in that Ark which is right there, that's where it is right there, in the sanctuary in heaven. And when people began to see this in the 1800s, they began to recognize the Ten Commandments are in heaven. The Ten Commandments are in heaven. How is it that some people can teach that the Ten Commandments have been nailed to the cross? What are they doing in heaven? You know? And so people began to realize, now wait a minute, there's something wrong here with this picture. And they began to realize that the Ten Commandments were not done away with. The Ten Commandments are still active, viable, needed by the human race. Turn to Revelation chapter 15. Revelation chapter 15. We're looking at verse 5 in Revelation chapter 15. Again, it just simply points out that there is a temple, a sanctuary in heaven. And after that, I looked and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. Where's the sanctuary? There is a sanctuary in heaven. And we can see that time and again, time after time in the scriptures, God wants us to know there is a temple in heaven. So friend, here's the question. Why is there a temple on earth and a temple in heaven? Why does there need to be two temples? Well, first of all, there's a temple in heaven because God wants us to know what he's doing in heaven and he wants us to be able to cooperate with what he's doing in heaven. If you go back to Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 8, this is 1066 again. We begin to investigate this. So we're in Hebrews chapter 8 and we're looking at verse 5 now. Talking about the priests who used to be officiating in the temple here on earth. Who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. Now, this is actually relating to Jesus. He's the high priest in heaven who serves 
unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. You know, the language is not easy. I guess it's actually speaking about the, the high priests down here below because they serve in the shadow and the pattern. So let's read it again. Talking about priests down here in the temple that Moses built who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. See, said he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee on the mount. So the the author of the book of Hebrews here is comparing the two tabernacles. One is the real tabernacle. The only the other one is only a shadow of the real tabernacle. Now let me tell you something. Have you ever seen your shadow? Can you cast a shadow sometime? If you were walking down the street and the car was careening your way and it was going to hit you or your shadow, which one would you rather that it hit? <laughs> well, there, that's right. Because a shadow is what? It's nothing. It's nothing but a shadow. And this is what the author is trying to say. The reality, the real sanctuary is in heaven. The things that are happening in that sanctuary are in reality dealing with your sins. The sanctuary that was down here below was not in reality dealing with your sins. It was all foreshadowing the dealing of your sins by Jesus Christ. First at the cross of Calvary, of course, and all the way through the sanctuary. So what happened down here below was just symbolism. The services there were just foreshadowing reality. We're still in Hebrews. Go to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, we're looking at verse 6. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. So we're talking about the first half of the tabernacle. This is the holy place right there. This is what he's talking about here. And these services in this part of the sanctuary happened daily, daily over the year. The whole program was a year long and it was symbolizing the plan of salvation throughout the history of the world from the beginning to the end. And this happened every day, every day, every day. And then once a year, this is where the priest would officiate. And that was symbolizing the end of the world. The last and final atonement should be made in that part of the sanctuary just once, symbolizing the end of the world. That's what I've said. Okay? So, we've already read Hebrews chapter 9, uh, verse 6. Happened every day. The sinner would come with a lamb, which of course foreshadowed Jesus. They would come to the gate of the of the um, uh, sanctuary enclosure there. The door represents Jesus. That foreshadowed Jesus too. The priest would come. He foreshadowed Jesus also. He would bring the sinner with the lamb to the altar of sacrifice. And right there, of course, it would foreshadow the cross of Calvary when the man would confess his sins on the head of the lamb. And it foreshadowed the cross of Calvary. And then finally... The priest would take some of the blood because the man would take a knife and kill the lamb. Some of the blood, well, all of the blood would be dripping from that wound. The priest would take the blood and he would go into the holy place of the sanctuary and he would take some of that sin-bearing blood. That, and that's the whole, whole point of the whole thing. He would take that blood and he would sprinkle it against that curtain here which was supposed to signify he was sprinkling it towards the mercy seat and towards the Ark of the Testament because the law that had been broken was right there. Okay? The man had broken the law and Jesus had paid the price and the blood was sprinkled right there to atone for that sin that he had committed. 
And then the sinner would take some of the blood and he would put it on the four corners of that altar. You'll see there's horns on that altar, the altar of incense, and he would put some blood on each of those four horns. All of that was foreshadowing a transfer of the sin that the man had committed into the holy place of the sanctuary. So question, why didn't the priest just throw away the blood with sin? I mean, wouldn't that be far better? I don't see Mrs. Abraham here tonight, but she had that question for us uh, a week or so ago. Why, hey, wouldn't it make a lot of sense to you that you confess your sins on the Lamb, your sins are transferred to the Lamb, the Lamb dies with your sin, the sin goes into the blood because because it's sin-bearing blood, and you just carry this, the, the blood and the sin away, dig a hole, pour it in there, bury the hole, your sins are gone forever. Why in the world does he bring the sin into the sanctuary? I mean, throw it away already so we can be done with it. But no, no. Because when you have confessed your sins, you have salvation. The blood of Jesus Christ covers you. Ah, but life is not done. You might live 50 years beyond the cross when you've accepted Jesus as your personal Savior. There could come a time where you could backslide. There could come a time where you could give up your Christianity. There could come a time where you could turn your back on God and resume your life of sin. And you could say, I don't want anything to do with Christianity. Do people do that? Oh yeah, people do that all the time. But wait a minute, they're not, their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life because if they've gone to the cross and confessed their sins, all of their records have been entered into the sanctuary and their names are written in the Lamb Book of Life. There's got to come a time where there's a judgment. God has got to ascertain, is that person still loyal to me? Is that person still going forward with me? Is he really a Christian today? And so all that blood holds the records of your life. And it's all in the sanctuary. The records are all there. All there. And if you change your minds, all those sins that went into the sanctuary, you will inherit them back. <laughs> and you will have to pay the price yourself if you don't accept the price that was paid by Jesus Christ. So the sanctuary uh, throughout the year was filling up with sin, filling up with sin, filling up with sin. Well, friends, the sanctuary has been filling up with sin for 6,000 years. So when we talk about the cleansing of the sanctuary, Jesus has a job to do in the cleansing of the sanctuary. So once a year, that's what the high priest did. He moved from here to that on the Day of Atonement. It's called Yom Kippur for the, for the Jews. And he would move there to make a final atonement, which represented the blotting out of sin. And that would be the end of the sin problem. It would be solved. Okay, well, let's go on. Uh, Hebrews chapter 8 again. We're going to look again at verse 5. Hebrews chapter 8. We're looking at verse 5 again. Who served unto the example and shadow of heavenly things as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, said he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. So what happened on the earth in Moses' sanctuary foreshadowed what was going to happen in the heavenly sanctuary as the time would progress. At a certain point in history, Jesus would move. That's in history now. Once a year he moved there when the tabernacle was in the wilderness. But at a certain point of history, he would move from the holy place of the sanctuary into the most holy place. And the purpose would be to cleanse the sanctuary from all the sin that was in there. Okay. 
Is there something in heaven that needs to be cleansed? Doesn't hardly make sense, right? But there is. It's our sins. Every time you confess your sins, it is covered by the blood of Jesus. The blood is sin-bearing, sin-bearing blood, and He is in the sanctuary, and He is, He is, how should I say, He's ministering His blood. He's ministering His atonement for your sins, and your sins go into the sanctuary, and the record of your life is in that blood, and in that sin. It's all recorded there. Don't change your mind. Don't change your mind. You're a Christian today? Stay a Christian. Yes, yes. Put it away. Put it away. More and more and more. Become more and more like Jesus. This is what we want. So that Jesus... Hey, we've got to come to the place where we quit sending sin in there. Don't you think? So that Jesus can cleanse it once and for all and say, Okay, I'm going to close this thing. Anybody out there with dirty laundry? (laughs) This is your last chance. You know, to me, it just reminds me of a laundromat, right? When you go to the laundromat, why do you go there at all? Well, because you've got dirty laundry. So you bring dirty laundry into the laundromat. What's the purpose? Well, it's to bring clean laundry out, right? And this is exactly the same thing. We come to Jesus. We confess our sins. It goes into to the sanctuary so that in the end, Jesus has the purpose of cleansing all of that. Not only in the sanctuary, because He's cleansing the sanctuary proportionately as He is cleansing your personal life. Is He cleansing your life? Or have you come to the place in your life where you're kind of plateaued? We just keep doing the same sins over and over again. And we keep repeating them. And we've come to the place where, you know, nothing I can do about it. I tried, but uh, I didn't succeed. And so, I guess these sins are going to stay with me until the end. Well, friends, Jesus will never come if we act that way. We've got to begin to understand that Jesus wants us to put away sin. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, and we're looking at verses 22 to 24, and it tells us there 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 is something to be cleansed in heaven. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 22 to 24. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, there is no cleansing. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heaven, see, the things in heaven are a pattern for the things on earth, So it was necessary that the patterns of things in heaven should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are a figure of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And to do what? To use his sacrifice for the cleansing of the sanctuary. When he says better things, It's his sacrifice that's a better thing. Because in the sanctuary down here in this world, it was the blood of goats and the blood of lambs and the blood of bullocks and the blood of all kinds, not all kinds of animals, but always clean animals. And they were used for the purpose of transferring sin into the sanctuary and in the most holy place at the Day of Atonement, then it was a goat and the blood was not sin-bearing at that point to cleanse the sanctuary. So God was using animals, but now he says... Better sacrifices than these. The sacrifice, the blood of Jesus' sacrifice himself. Okay, turn with me to Daniel chapter 8 again. Now we want to look at the prophecy 
that carries us for 2,300 years. This is what we're looking at now. Daniel chapter 8. This is 789. Those of you who are following by page number. Daniel chapter chapter 8. We've been studying the book of Daniel a little bit. Not so much. We'd like to spend more times in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7. And this now I've had you turn to Daniel, Daniel chapter 8. And it's always the same prophecy. It's always the prophecy of the nations as nations rise and nations fall. And of course Babylon rose and eventually Babylon did fall also to the Medes and the Persians. We see that here. Well, the Medes and the Persians rose and they too did come to fall into the hands of the Grecian people. And they rose and they fell into the hands of the of the Roman Empire, of the pagan Romans. And they were probably the longest existing empire. They lasted a long, 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 long time. But eventually, because of decadence, really, the Romans began to fall apart. And then Rome, of course, the empire was divided into Europe, into ten nations, which eventually only became seven nations. And that's what we see there. And throughout the whole thing, we see God's people being oppressed, being persecuted, and being martyred. And Daniel wonders at this thing. When is this going to end? How long are God's people going to suffer? How long must this go on? And God is hearing that question in his heart and in his mind. In Daniel chapter 8, we're looking at verse 14. And he gives Daniel an answer by an angel. I'm not so sure. I think it's the angel Gabriel. Look at verse 14 now. The answer comes from God through the angel to Daniel. And he said unto me, Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. We're talking about the cleansing of the sanctuary here. And this is the answer that the, that the angel gives to Daniel. Now in prophecy, you may know, you may not know, but one day in prophecy equals one year, a literal year. One day in prophecy equals a literal year. You can see that in Ezekiel chapter 4 verse 6. We don't have the whole quotation there, but we're going to read what we take out from that verse. I have appointed thee a day for a year. That's symbolism, obviously. And you can see that in Numbers chapter 14, verse 34 also. Even 40 days, each day for a year. You remember that the princes, one from each tribe, had gone into the land of milk and honey. They'd gone to spy the land, and they came back with an evil report. And God said, okay, one day for a year. You were in there 40 days, you're going to be in the wilderness 40 years. One day, four years, obviously symbolic. And they were literally 40 years in the wilderness because they had been 40 days spying the land. Now, put yourself back into Daniel's shoes. This is a prophecy. Daniel understands one day for a year. One day is symbolic of a year. He understands this. He gets a prophecy from an angel and he goes like, What did you say? 2,300 days? That means 2,300 years? Ah, it can't be. Daniel is blown away. Look at verse 15 and verse 16 here in Daniel chapter 8. And it came to pass when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning, then behold, there stood before me the, in the appearance of a man. That was an angel, but he looked like a man. Verse 16. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Uli, that's a river, which called and said, Gabriel, that's the angel Gabriel, by the way, Gabriel is the angel, as far as I know, that replaced Lucifer. And so he's one of the mightiest of angels. Gabriel is. 
make this man to understand the vision because Daniel, his, draw, his jaw is dropped and he's thinking, oh my goodness, 2,300 years before we solved this problem, man, this is way, way too long and he can't understand. So God says to the angel, go to Daniel, make him understand. So we're looking at verses 26 and 27 now in Daniel chapter 8. And the vision of the evening and the morning, that's a day by the way, a whole evening and a morning equals one day. So the vision of the days, talking about Daniel 8.14, which was told is true. Wherefore shut thou up the vision, for it shall be for many days. I'll say it's 2,300 2, days. And I, Daniel, fainted and was six certain days. Afterward I rose up and did the king's business. And I was astonished, blown away at the vision. But nobody understand it. And you remember, God had sent Gabriel to make Daniel understand it. And Gabriel would have wanted to make Daniel understand it, but Daniel got to be so sick, he just couldn't take the truth of it for, for the moment. And so, Gabriel had to back off and let Daniel recover from his sickness, and the job had not been done by Gabriel. And so, he is still commissioned to do this. So, we have to move in to Daniel chapter 9 now, Daniel's commission, I mean, Gabriel's commission is still the same. Make Daniel to understand this thing, the 2300 day prophecy. Daniel chapter 9, we're looking at verses 1 and 2. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Now, poor old Daniel. See, Gabriel hasn't come back yet to make him understand the vision of the 2300 days. So Daniel thinks to himself, well, I'll go to the scriptures. As a matter of fact, that's what you and I should do all the time, right? You might hear a prophecy and say, well, let's go check out the scriptures to see what they say about this prophecy. And that's what Daniel did. So Daniel went to the scriptures and he began to study and study and study. And he found the prophecy. He found the prophecy in the book of Jeremiah that said that the Babylonian captivity would be 70 years. Well, 70 years is far short of 2,300 years, don't you think? And so that didn't cut it. That didn't make an, that didn't answer to him. He could see that Jerusalem would be freed. The captivity would be over in 70 years. But that did not account for 2,300 years. And so he was still not understanding what was going on. So he prayed. If you look at verse 3, we're still in Daniel chapter 9. By the way, he prays from verse 3 all the way to verse 19. It's one of the most beautiful prayers in all of the scriptures. If you're ever into studying prayer or how to pray, this is a model prayer. It really is. But we're not going to take the time to study all of those verses. We're just going to look at verse 3. But he prays all the way to verse 19. So it says in verse 3, I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. What did Daniel want? Oh, he wanted to understand the prophecy in Daniel 8 verse 14. That's what he wanted. That's what he was trying to, to get at. And so Gabriel wants to explain this to him. Verse 24. Go to verse 24. This is after the prayer is finished here in verse 24. Uh, I think I missed something. Let's go to verse 20 to 23. And while I was speaking and praying, see, he ended his prayer at 19. 
while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yea, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. That's three o'clock in the afternoon, the evening sacrifice. So Gabriel comes back and he touches Daniel. Verse 22. And he informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I am now come to give you skill and understanding. What did he want to give him skill and understanding about? The 2300 days. Daniel needed to understand when it began and when it was going to end and what it was all about. And so Gabriel came to give him this understanding. Now what you find in the rest of the chapter 9, verse 24, all the way to the other end is an explanation of this thing. It's really technical. It's not easy, but we're going to go through it as best I know how, and I hope by the end we all understand it clearly. But it lay. I'll tell you what, I've been a Seventh-day Adventist for 37 years plus, however many years I've been a Christian. I've been studying this for a long time, and it's never easy to grasp it all, uh, because it, it's, it's quite technical. Well, we can. We can grasp it. There are elements in it that make it difficult, but we can. So we're going to try. We're going to start and we're going to go through point by point in these verses. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. This is the explanation now. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, that is the 2300 days, and to anoint, well, no, excuse me, that isn't. Yeah, I've already messed up. Seventy weeks are determined, and that's going to carry us just so far, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the Most Holy. Who's the Most Holy? Jesus is the Most Holy, and He's going to be anointed in the future uh, from the time of Daniel. Okay? He says here, 70 weeks are determined. The word determined means cut off. Gabriel is explaining the 2300 days, the 2300 year prophecy. And he says, we're going to start with the first 70 days. Okay, We're going to cut it off from the 2300 thing. We're going to just cut a piece off. I want to explain this first. This is what Gabriel is trying to do for David. Now, for, for Daniel. Okay. We already know that a day equals a year. And now he's telling him 70 weeks. How many, how many days in 70 weeks? 490 days. Yes. 70 weeks times 7 days, right? There's 7 days in a week. We've all got that down. Sure. And so 7 days times 70 weeks equals 490 years. And in the prophecy it says here, I am giving your people Daniel, the chosen people of God, I'm giving the Jews, the Jews, I'm giving them 490 years to get their act together. I am giving the Jews 490 years to finish their transgression, to make an end of sin, to bring in reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to anoint the Holy One, which is Jesus the Messiah. So you've got 490 years to get your act together. That's what this one is all about. 
The problem, of course, is that Daniel doesn't have a beginning point. Where is he going to begin with this prophecy? So he knows that the Jews have 490 years. Is it from the day that he gets the explanation, or did it start some other time? And so now he needs that to be to be explained to him. So we go to verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince, that's Jesus, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. So there he answers their question. He gives Daniel the starting point. Did you catch it? It's not easy to catch always, is it? But there it is. He says, from the going forth of the commandment or the decree to restore and build Jerusalem. Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Babylonians when they took the, the Jews into captivity. They had destroyed. And then after some passing of time, but we're not told exactly how much passing of time, from some passing of time, from the time there was a decree to rebuild Jerusalem, from that time on you can start the 2300 year prophecy. That's what he was saying. And then he said, seven weeks and three score. How much is three score? That's 60. A score is 20, right? Seven weeks, three score weeks, that is 60 weeks plus two. That would bring us to 69 weeks instead of 70. Now we started with 70. Now we're at 69 weeks. And that brings us to the anointing of Jesus. All right. Now, when did the command to rebuild? When was that decree given? Go with me to Ezra chapter 6. And this is page 423. Ezra chapter 6. And we find there four decrees. Amazing. Ezra chapter 6. We're looking at verse 14. And the elders of the Jews builded. And they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet. And Zechariah the son of Ido. And they builded and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the commandment of Cyrus and the commandment of Darius and the commandment of Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now, here we have it. Four commands to rebuild. Which one is it? The first commandment, of course, is by God. He is the overall sovereign. And he says, we're going to rebuild Jerusalem, so go and rebuild Jerusalem. Well, there's no date on his saying that. But we do have a date for Cyrus. Cyrus gave a, made a decree in 536 B.C. that Jerusalem should be rebuilt. And Darius, another king of Persia, made a decree that Jerusalem should be rebuilt. That decree was in 519 B.C. And then, of course, the last one, Artaxerxes, made a decree that Jerusalem should be rebuilt in 457 B.C. So which one was it? Well, friends, it's not the decree that God himself gave, because he always gave these decrees through these men. And it's not the decree that Cyrus and Darius gave, because they never followed through in making provision for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Only Artaxerxes actually, in the end, made a decree, and he supplied everything that these people were going to need to rebuild Jerusalem. And that was in 457 B.C. So now we have a starting point where the 2300 days should Begin. And then it says, you gotta cut off 490 years from that. So you take 457 and you add 490 years. Now you think you would subtract 490 years. 
But no, because 457 is counting down rather than counting up. And so you would add 490 years and it brings you to the year 34 AD. Okay? Do you know that if you have a calculator, it wouldn't work on your calculator? Do you know why it wouldn't work? Because the numbers are counting down from 457, 456, 455. Every year, is the number is getting smaller. You get down to year 5, year 4, year 3, and year 1, the last year, which is B.C. And then you start A.D., you start with year 1, year 2, year 3. Did you notice there that we have two year 1? Sure, you're counting down to year 1 and you're starting with year 1, so you have two year 1 and your calculator wouldn't catch that. Because calculators don't think, um, you understand. And so, when you do it mechanically, what you do it with your brain working, it comes out to 400 and it's, it, it, there's a one year difference there. It comes out to the year 34 AD. Okay, Daniel 9.25. Let's go back to Daniel 9.25. That's 791. Daniel 9.25 Okay. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment, that's the decree, 457 B.C., to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous Time. So seven weeks and three score, that's sixty weeks, plus two weeks equals sixty-nine weeks. That's seven days short of four hundred and ninety that we started with. So that's four hundred and eighty-three years, okay? From the commandment to rebuild. What does the word Messiah mean? We go all the way to the Messiah, to the anointing of the Messiah. Do you know what the word Messiah means? It means the anointed one. Do you know what the word Christ means? It means the very same thing. The anointed one. When was Jesus the Messiah anointed? Well, 483 years, starting with 457 B.C., brings you to the year 27 A.D. Go to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. And that's page 977. Acts chapter 10. We're looking at verse 37. Actually, I want to look at verse 38 also, and verse 38 is not up there, but that's really the, the verse we want to look at, is verse 38. Let's look at verse 37 also. That word I say, you know, which was published throughout all of Judea and began with Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed with the devil, for God was with him. And so there came a time when Jesus was anointed. The Holy Spirit came upon him. Do you remember when that time was? That was at his baptism. He went into the water and he came up from his baptism. He knelt on the bank there and he prayed a prayer. And the dove came down in form of the Holy Spirit. And there we have it right there. (laughs) Okay? I don't know what I'm pointing at. Right here. 27 A.D. That brings us to the baptism of Jesus, Jesus Christ. Now remember, Daniel dream, Daniel's dream said 70 weeks would be cut off from the 2300 years. 69 of the 70 weeks brings us to the Messiah's anointing, 
That's right here. And so from 27 AD, there remains one week, right? Seven more years. And that goes from here to here. What happens during those seven years? Well, first of all, let's go to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. We want to hear Jesus' words. I hope this is making sense to you. It's um, not an easy concept to grasp. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now, after that, John was put in prison. Jesus came to Galilee. Remember, Jesus had just been baptized. John went into prison. And Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom. What was his message? Verse 15. And saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. What was he saying? The time is fulfilled. Well, he was referring to the prophecy of Daniel, chapter 9, where it said that for 483 years there would be an anointing of the Messiah. And so he was preaching the good news that the time had been fulfilled. Okay, so now, seven years left. Go back to Daniel chapter 9. Now, I must warn you, there's a verse in here, that's the one we're going to look at now. Daniel chapter 9, page 791. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. Verse 26 hardly makes sense at all when you're trying to study this. It nearly blew me away. I had to go to the books to find out what in the world is going on. I don't understand Daniel 26. Let's read it. I mean Daniel 9, verse 26. And it says, And after three score and two weeks, now that's sixty and two weeks, shall the Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. Who was he cut off for? Well, for you and for me. Jesus died on the cross of Calvary. Now, if you look at the at the time prophecy here, 62 weeks. After that, he's cut off. Well, it doesn't fit in with any of anything else we're studying here. What in the world is it saying? Well, all that it's saying is that after this, the Messiah will be cut off. Sometime after this. It's not a specific prophecy that stops on a specific year or date or anything. He's just saying after 62 weeks. Sometime after that, Jesus, of course, will be cut off will be crucified. After three score and two weeks shall the Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of that war, desolation are, desolations are determined. And it's pointing to a, a general called Titus who's going to destroy Jerusalem in A.D. 70. So that's a long way down the road. That's, you know, 40 years later. And why it's there is just to confuse guys like me, you understand. Um, and it did very well this afternoon. I was looking at this and saying, how am I going to teach this when I don't know what it's saying? Anyway, that was the answer when I went to the books. That I suppose that's what it means. After 62 weeks, sometime after that, Jesus would be cut off, not for himself, for you and me. And then sometime later, which actually turns out to be 70 A.D., of course, a Titus came and destroyed the temple. All right, let's go to verse 27. We can understand that a little better. Verse 27. That's the very last verse in Daniel chapter 9. Praise the Lord, we wouldn't want too many more verses because we would be too late. Verse 27. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And now we've already pointed out that there would be one week left after his baptism. There would be seven years left. Okay, that's the last week. Verse 27. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week and in the midst of the week. That is in the very middle of the week. Look at it right there. A.D. 31. 
In the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. All these sacrifices, all the way from Cain and Abel, all the way from from the lamb that died for Adam and Eve so that they could have clothing. You understand? All these sacrifices that were foreshadowing the cross will come to an end right there. That would be the end of all of that. We're in verse 27. He shall cause the sacrifices and the oblation of the abomination. Uh, he shall make it desolate even unto the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Anyways, it says all that, lots of words, just to say that all the sacrifices cease right there. That's the end. That's when Jesus is crucified in the fall of 31, excuse me, in the spring of 31 A.D. When Jesus was up on the cross, it was at the hour of the evening sacrifice. The high priest had a lamb and he had his knife raised up and Jesus died on the cross and as Jesus died, an unseen hand grabbed the curtains between the holy and the most holy place, that one right there, and ripped it from top to bottom. Now, no eye was ever supposed to see in there. No one was ever supposed to see in there except the high priest which represented Jesus. And when God took that curtain and ripped it from top to bottom and opened it up for the whole world to see, He says, this business is done. This sanctuary is no more needed because Jesus has gone to the cross. He's paid the penalty. It's all over. No more sacrifices. We don't need them anymore because Jesus paid the penalty. The sacrificial system was finished. So, what happened at the end of the seven years? Because we know that Jesus was, of course, sacrificed right there in the middle. And it says in the midst of the week, the sacrifices should cease. So why does it keep on going? Why does time keep on going after that? Well, friends, listen. Jesus, God, is so generous. He is so good. He has given his people 490 years to get their act together. We're down to the last two and a half years here. To A.D. 34. And God is saying, okay, my son has been sacrificed. His influence has been upon you. We're going to preach the gospel. The Holy Spirit will be poured out during this time. There's going to be an outgoing of gospel, gospel preaching and proclamation going on there. And you're, the Jewish people are going to be given another chance. All the way to that point. And you know what happened in 34 AD, right? A man by the name of Stephen, filled with the Holy Ghost, preaching the gospel, and the Jewish people got hold of him, and they stoned him, and God said, that's it, I've had enough. Had enough. And so now, I'm transferring the anointing from the Jewish people, transferring it to the Christian people, and now they are my chosen people. You know, one time... Peter came to Jesus and he said, how many times should I forgive someone who offends me? Should I forgive him seven times? And Peter was thinking to be very generous here, seven times. I mean, somebody steps on your toes seven times. You come to the place where you'd like to do something too, right? And Jesus says, what did Jesus say? Do you remember? Seventy times seventy. Do you know to what that adds up? Four hundred and ninety years. Yeah. And that's what Jesus had done. He had given his people 490 years. Now to us, we always say as preachers, we always say, well, that is such a great number that there's no way you can stop forgiving. I mean, who's going to forgive anyone 490 times? Well, God has. 
He worked with his people and he worked with his people and he worked with his people for 490 years. Sins coming into the sanctuary, keep them coming into the sanctuary. He keep them, he forgave them and forgave them and forgave them. But 490 years came and he said, that's it. It's done. It's finished. Now, are the Jewish, Jewish people lost? Well, not the individual. Because the cross of Calvary, when Jesus went to the cross, he paid the sins he paid the price for the sins of the whole world so a Jewish man may find salvation at the cross of Calvary, just like anybody else can. Uh, but the Jewish nation is not now God's chosen people, even though they might think they are. I, we have something to teach them, of course. So, we've used up 490 of the 2300 years. What does that leave when you subtract 490 years from 2300 years? What's the number that's left? 1810 years. So you add up from 34, right there, 1810 years, and it comes to 1844. What happened in 1844? Well, all you have to do is go back to Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, and it says there, unto 2300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. At that point in 1844 the sanctuary began to be cleansed. Jesus transferred from the holy place where he had been ministering for 1810 years and he transferred into the most holy place and he says now I am entering into my final atonement. Now I am going to work at the blotting out of sin. I am going to work on the lives of my people to put away sin. I am not now going to cover sin anymore. Now we're going to eradicate the sin out of your lives. If God's people would cooperate with him. But you see, we've been here since 1844 for 160 years. I don't know how long we've been here. I, you know, I haven't sat down to calculate it, but it's 160 plus years, right? Why haven't we ever as a people bought into this thing? Why are we still here when Jesus had been trying for all this time to cleanse the sanctuary? Ah, friends, I don't know, but it's embarrassing. We're going to have to apologize to the Lord. We're going to have to approach Him and say, Hey, I'm glad you waited. <laughs> but the Lord would have come long ere this. We could have finished this thing. Now, now that we know this, what are we going to do with it? What are we going to do with it? We know, right? Are we going to cooperate with the Lord in this thing? Are you on board? Do you know what Jesus is trying to do now in the most holy place of the sanctuary? He's trying to cleanse it once and for all. Now, listen. If you have sinned, don't stop sending your sin into the sanctuary. I mean, don't stop confessing your sin. Because if you do, you won't be in the kingdom. And so you have to do it. Ah, but friends, we're going to have to work toward the point where we don't have to send sin into the sanctuary anymore. It's about time we stop sinning. Don't you think? Now listen, you're not going to do this in your own strength. There's no way. You can say, okay, I'm going to stop sinning now. <laughs> Tomorrow, you'll be flat on your face and you'll wonder what happened and you'll be so discouraged at night. Uh, that's not how it works. No, no. Tomorrow, get on your knees and ask God, plead with Him. 
Just plead with him to give you the power, to give you the ISAB so that you can see sin coming. So you can see a temptation when it's coming your way. Plead with God to give you the ISAB to recognize the sin as it is coming your way. Then plead with God for the grace needed to meet that temptation successfully. And as we do that, day by day, we will grow to become more and more like Jesus. If we fail, don't be discouraged. Do it again. Start over again. Turn with me to Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16. This is page 105 in Leviticus. And we're going to stop right there. Leviticus 16, page 105. Leviticus 16, verse 30. As a matter of fact, I might just read a couple more verses around that. This Leviticus 16 finds us on the Day of Atonement in the in the time of the sanctuary, once a year, all of Israel stopped. Because Jesus was going to cleanse the sanctuary on that day. Okay? It was called Yom Kippur. And this is what we're going to read about here in verse um, 29. Let's start with verse 29. And this shall be a statute forever unto you, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you will afflict your soul. That is, you'll search your hearts. And do no work at all, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that sojourns among you. And friends, listen, this actually started ten days earlier. There was a feast of trumpets ten days earlier. And the trumpets began to be sounded. And the people heard the trumpets and they said, Aha, we've got ten days to get our act together. And so they needed to put away sin before this day. And on that day, they would afflict their souls. They would search their hearts. They would fast. They would... They would pray. They would do no work because they had to get all the sin out of their lives so that they could close that sanctuary that day. And anyone who did not have the sin taken out of their... They had not confessed their sins. They were still hanging on to their sins. They would be cut off from Israel. That was the plan. Verse 30. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. That's what I want. What do you say? That's what I want. I hate being a sinner. Don't you? It's terrible. <laughs> it won't be forever. Jesus has a robe to put on us. When we confess, we disrobe. We take off our filthy rags. We give them to Him. He pays the penalty. And He turns around and gives us His own garment of righteousness. And we can be in the sight of God as if we had never sinned. We can do that daily. Morning sacrifice, evening sacrifice. Morning sacrifice, evening sacrifice. We meet with the Lord. We give our lives to Him. Little by little, we will become like Jesus. Have you given your heart to the Lord? Have you? Well, would you like to make a deeper dedication of your life to Him? This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.